Well, it's good to see everybody here today. Happy New Year, or maybe we should just say New Year and leave the happy out. It's quite a year already with the fires, the floods, the politics. Crazy. So I'm going to talk today about why stuff happens according to early Buddhism, just to give us a reference point when we say that mantra, why, why, why? <laughs> so in early Buddhism, some people think it's all about karma. That there's a cause and consequence to everything that can be pointed to as being karmic. And if you're a Christian, uh, you might say, well, God is really in control of everything. And God gives us a certain amount of freedom because he doesn't want us to be puppets on a string, but ultimately all the good stuff and bad stuff can be looked at as his, her, its fault. Okay. And so we're stuck between why stuff happens and only having one reason for stuff happening. But... If you're a Buddhist and understand uh, Buddhist cosmology and philosophy and dharmology, you will say to yourself that nothing ever happens because of one thing. It always happens because of many things in combination. So if that be the case, we are less likely to be a victim because we can't point at simply one thing trying to get us because of something we think we said, we did, or we thought. So it's an interesting concept for me when I first came upon the five niyamas of early Buddhism that I was relieved to know that there is a reason for stuff happening. You know, and and so as I went further and further into the five niyamas, I was stuck. There was one of them, which I'll talk about, at greater length, that I couldn't figure out. So for the past few years, I've been trying to figure it out, and last night, I figured it out. (laughs) Which was really appropriate, because I was giving this talk today, and (laughs) I like it when it happens that way. So I brought some notes today, because I didn't want to leave anything out. You know, sometimes um, my memory is really good, and other times it's so-so. And this is such an important topic that I wanted to sort of cover all the stuff in a way that's understandable and maybe entertaining in some parts. So we have the first niyama, the first cause, the first reason stuff happens is because of just nature. You know, just nature, like a volcano, an earthquake. We just had one a couple days ago, you know, woke me up. I went, whoa, earthquake, and then back to sleep. We have tsunamis. We have hurricanes. We have tornadoes. We have a lot of stuff that really causes havoc. And it's not because of karma. Karma has nothing to do with that stuff. I don't care how good a person you are. If you're stuck in a hurricane, it's not a good place to be. So we we have to look at nature, the cosmos, our Earth, our solar system, 
as being the reason a lot of stuff happens. And we can curse it. We can curse the sun and Mercury and Neptune. We can do all of that stuff and wish it wasn't as bad as it is. But the great thing about that, I find, is there is no intention. That nature has no intention. Nature could care less whether we live or die. Doesn't matter to nature. We can even tell nature that we're here. We can petition nature to see that we exist in a certain way. And please give me a break. And nature is going to say, I don't care. Because if nature wants to have a hurricane or a volcano and you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you will suffer. And you will probably physically be hurt and you may even die. And nature sheds no tear. So that's the first reason stuff happens. It's a big reason. And, and it's something that's indifferent and has no intention of hurting us. And that is a way of not becoming a victim. Because when I was a Christian and things went wrong, I had the feeling that God intended me to suffer just a little bit. Just to sort of wake up and find I was doing the wrong thing. And if I continued to do that, I felt to myself that, well, God may just kill my dog just to show me who's in charge. Thankfully, that never happened. and I was never had to blame anything or anyone for a dead dog. They just died naturally. But it's that kind of thing. But when I look at nature and I see a limb fall 100 feet and kill somebody walking beneath the tree, I don't think the tree intended to do that. I don't think the tree hated the hiker enough to kill it with a limb. I think it was just bad timing on the hiker's part to be under that tree. And it wasn't alive, it was dead, and a lot of those branches looked like they were going to fall anyway. So we need to be cautious when we're in nature. I don't necessarily like hiking because there are snakes and spiders. There are all sorts of creatures. There's cougars and bobcats. There's like a lot of stuff out there that would kill me and eat me just because I looked appetizing to them. And I don't know where they lie. I don't know if they're watching. So as I walk through nature, I am a bit anxious. You know, what's around the next corner? Now I'm walking down Vermont Avenue, and I should be more concerned about Vermont (laughs) Avenue than nature, because there's a lot more ways to die on Vermont Avenue. So far, so good in both cases. And I'm doing my daily walks now. As I get older, you know, I figure what's good. I just walk. And when you walk, you see a lot of stuff you didn't see in the car or on the motorcycle. And it's fascinating. And there are a lot of other people walking, too. And I find I'm never alone as I'm walking. And sometimes they bump into you, and sometimes they, you know, go slow, and you want to go fast, and you have to pass them. And you wonder, how should you recognize them and let them know you're going to pass? You know, if I had a car, I could blink my lights. Do I say, I'm going by? If I get too close to them, and they turn around, and they see this big guy behind them, you know, it makes them feel a little uncomfortable. Should I say, hi, how are you? I'm okay. I'm not going to do anything except pass. Can you just pull over to the left just a little bit so I can get by? Fascinating what you have to do when you walk in a big city. Okay, the second thing that causes us a lot of 
suffering and pain and anxiety is our biology. You know, we have like a lot of genes and chromosomes that are sort of pre-programmed to make us who we are today. You know, and, and I could curse my father and my grandfather and his grandfather for my hairline because it seemed to be in my genes and chromosomes that my hair would eventually fall out and I would look like this, but I chose the right profession, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter quite as much, you know. But there's like a lot of stuff, you know, and sometimes we get illnesses because of our genes and chromosomes. We're sort of pre-programmed to go in that direction, you know, like maybe diabetes or something because it was a family trait or maybe heart condition because it was a family trait and blah, 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 blah. So do we curse every ancestor we've ever had because we ended up this way, you know? Well, we could but it would be all for naught because it doesn't really matter. What are we going to do with what we have to work with? You know, this is what we have to work with. Whoever we are, this is the the body we've been given, and now we're going to have to work with it. And sometimes we might need to exercise more than other people just to maintain what we have. Sometimes we need to take vitamins and probiotics because that helps us maintain an efficiency that wasn't in our genes and chromosomes. And I found the best vitamin just a couple months ago called Pro 65, one-a-day vitamins. You know, and the thing, the irony of taking one-a-day Pro 65 is you have to take two. (laughs) And I just thought to myself, "This, this is just too much. But I find it helps me. It makes me feel good. It sort of warms me on the cold nights. And it might be all psychological. I don't know. But I've taken vitamins most of my life. And if it is all psychological, it still works for me because I feel better when I take my vitamins. And, and, And I'm tall. And so sometimes, you know, your legs don't feel as good as they used to or your back doesn't feel. And so you have to adjust with that, too. So we have these genes and chromosomes. We also find them in flowers and crops. You know, their genes and chromosomes tell them to grow at a certain rate, no matter how much fertilizer you give them or how many, no matter how often you water them. You can't pull that tree any faster out of the ground than it's going to grow. So those genes and chromosomes have a lot to do with us and how we feel about ourselves and what happens to us and how we relate to what's happening to us. Is this some kind of evil process that's against us? Or is it just we're not supposed to have hair? And it's fine, because there's a lot of cool hats now, and you can just wear a hat. The third one. Whoa, this is the big one now. This is the one everybody attributes every bad or good thing to, is the karma. Karma is the third niyama. Now, karma is the moral aspect of this model, okay? So there's good karma and there's bad karma, kusala, akusala. And and that allows us to theoretically have a better life if we're skillful and a more challenging life if we're unskillful. And I think this is a wonderful reference point because Buddhism doesn't have predestination. It's not fatalistic, Anything we've done yesterday, we can to a certain extent 
rectify it today by having more good karma. Now, a lot of stuff we do, we don't feel the results right away. We might say something about someone, and two weeks later, they hear that we've said something about them. So in that period of time, from cause to consequence, we can be proactive. We can change the consequence by doing a lot of skillful things, intention, speech, and action, which will change the results of our karma. I love that idea, that we can be proactive. We don't have to just sit back and wait for it to happen. We can aggressively go in and be good, skillful, wholesome people. Okay, now this is a tough one because we're not always thinking in that way. We're just sort of thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I hope it's not going to turn out the way I think it's supposed to or going to or the way I don't want it to. Now, Buddhism doesn't have hope. No hope in Buddhism. It's never going to get better. It's always going to stay just about how it is. The only thing that changes is our relationship to it. It stays that way. But with wisdom and compassion and insight, we can change the way we respond to the world. You know, and as I look back now, I'm going to be 69 this year. How cool is that? Almost 70. Still around. Still able to hold a thought. (laughs) But as I look back on the world, you know what? It never gets any better. When I was in grade school, and some of you will remember this, we had duck and cover exercises. Because... In World War II, we dropped two atomic bombs. And that changed the world forever. It meant we could destroy the entire human population if we wanted to. Never before were we able to do that. And then in 1962, and some of you may remember this, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. And Russia was sending the missiles over to Cuba, and they were so close to Florida... And John F. Kennedy made a stand and said, no, you can't do that. Well, great for the political part of it, but for the human part of it, we were all scared to death that we were going to die in this atomic bomb catastrophe. So in Orangedale Elementary School in Phoenix, Arizona, that I attended, we would do duck and cover underneath the desk. And I'm thinking to myself, now we just be kindling, you know, (laughs) because it's not going to help. But it gives you something to do while the bombs are dropping. (laughs) You know, and for a long period of time, we didn't even think about it anymore. And then a couple years ago, North Korea, we're building the bomb. We want to be somebody. And everybody that somebody has a couple bombs. And if you have more than a couple bombs, then you're really somebody. And now we're thinking about this atomic dilemma again. You know, do we really need atomic weapons? You know, because that's going to be the end of the end. You know, and, and that's not really a war, you know. That's just a suicide mission. So I'm thinking to myself, wow, we're really rethinking all this kind of stuff now. And they just, in Hawaii, I think it was last month, had 
sirens warning that the bombs were on the way. For 28 minutes, everybody in Hawaii thought they were going to die. And they were putting children down sewer holes to protect them from the bomb. You know, but I don't know what the child would have done after the bomb was dropped and they crawled out. What would they have done then? My theory is, if the bombs come, run towards the light. <laughs> Just become a puff of dust. You know, no suffering there. So then 28 minutes later, they apologized. Are you kidding me? They apologized for pushing the wrong button. You know, now they're going to have two people pushing that button. Okay. Well, let's hope they're both, you know, have clarity and kindness in their heart as they push that button. But that's how it sort of works. Karma is our friend. Karma is how we change our life for the better. Karma is the moral equivalent of, equivalent of, of, I guess, believing that a super or higher power is in charge. Now, the thing about that, for me, is the super or higher power always has an intention. Karma doesn't care either. Karma doesn't care. You know, you can be walking down the street and trip on a banana peel. And you go, whoa, how could that have happened? You know? It must be bad karma. No, it's not bad karma. It's gravity. (laughs) Gravity made you fall. Don't blame karma. And you probably had a lack of mindfulness in that one moment and didn't see the banana peel on the ground. So don't blame karma. You know, look at yourself and say, I need to be more aware. I need to understand that gravity is always there and it's not my friend. Especially when I'm falling down. So, something bad happens. Okay, I must have bad karma. You don't have bad karma. You have the cosmos is against you, but not with any intention. You have genes and chromosomes that may not be working in your favor. You have karmic consequences that may be manifesting in this present moment and you don't remember when you planted those karmic seeds it could have been this lifetime or last lifetime or five lifetimes ago and now they're manifesting but instead of complaining about the karma you jump on the bandwagon and say okay i'm in charge this is my karma i'm going to do something to change it i'm not going to hope it's going to change i'm not going to pray it's going to change I'm going to do something, either through thinking, speaking, or acting, that will change the consequence of all future karma. Cool. That always gives us something to do. We're in charge. We're not puppets on a string. We're in charge. And that's what I like most about Buddhism, is the accountability. That if I don't like the way my life is going, I can do something about it. You know? Or I can simply accept the fact that that's the way it is. That's the way it is. Sometimes you can't change it. But you can change the way you accept it. And the best way to accept your situation is, number one, forgiveness. Forgiving yourself for being in this situation or thinking that you're in this situation. Okay? So forgiveness allows us to move to the next place, which is acceptance. Forgiveness, acceptance.
forgiveness, acceptance. We forgive ourselves, we forgive the planet, we forgive Mars, we forgive the tsunami, and then we come to a place of acceptance with the way things are. And that's when we no longer have to suffer in the way we do. Okay. Number four. This is the one that I had the epiphany last night. I'm reading this article, and I'm thinking, and I took a hot shower, and in the hot shower, it always happens. Epiphany. Epiphany. Wow. It's a very special shower we have at the meditation center. So what is the fourth niyama? It is dharma. The fourth niyama is dharma. And it's the, it's the psychological, it's the dharmic aspects to why things happen. And I'm going, okay, so far so good. But how can I put this into a workable model? This is how suffering occurs. The other kind of stuff were situations and pain and, and feeling that you've been left behind for some reason. But this is the real Buddhist stuff. The fourth niyama is dharma, and this is why we suffer. And more importantly, this is how we can end our suffering. So if we're suffering, we look at it as being, okay, what did the Buddha say? The Buddha didn't say we're suffering because of the world. That's pain. The Buddha said we're internally suffering because we can't come to a place of acceptance with the way things are. We always want it to be different than it is because we know it could always be better, but not necessarily so. So, some of the aspects of the Dharma, Niyama category would be Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. Okay, why do we suffer? Because everything changes. You know, and sometimes if it's bad, we can hardly wait for it to change. And sometimes if it's good, we're disappointed when it does change. And why does Disneyland have to close every night? You know, because we have to leave the happiest place on earth. And suffering begins. Okay. So here we are, and we're going, okay, Nietzsche, change. Yeah, everything changes. I don't like the way things change, you know. We just had a new year, which is a significant change, 2017 to 2018. And if anybody still writes checks like I do, then you have to remember it's 2018. Or you rip up a couple checks until you get it right. Okay. But I find most people don't write checks anymore. I've been left behind, you know. In fact, a lot of people don't even take checks. And some people don't even take cash anymore. And you just go, really? The world has changed that much? Yes, it has. And I'm going, whoa, I've got to really update my reality, you know. And look around and say, yeah, everything's changed but me. So I've got to be with it now, you know. So I'm writing less checks, paying more cash, and occasionally using a debit card. You know, I, I don't have a charge card. And, and you may think you can't live without a charge card, but it is possible if you live in a meditation center. <laughs> and so I, I'm working with it, you know, and I have my little debit card and I have my cash. And, and, you know, and sometimes I write a check if I have to mail money, you know, and things like that. And it seems to work okay. 
until I get into the general population. You know, and then I go into like Starbucks and they're taking their cell phones and pointing it at something. <laughs> I mean, what the hell are they doing? And they get the coffee after that. No money was exchanged. Nothing. Just a cell phone. Wow. How cruel is that? So change can be our best friend or it can make us go crazy. And in the Dharma, we find that the Buddha talked a lot about impermanence, anicca, and he said it always seemed to lead eventually to suffering. Even the good change allowed us to suffer ultimately because the good change would change into the bad change. You know, so for instance, you have a puppy that turns into a dog. That's a good change. But now the dog has different ideas about how it wants to live with you. That's not so good. And pretty soon the dog wants to be in charge, just like a cat. And that's not so good either. So you're sort of working with this change and this evolution of this personality. And you go, yeah, okay. It was so cute as a puppy, you know. And now it just wants it his way or her way. So change ultimately will be unsatisfactory because it doesn't always change for the best. In fact, it can't. Because even if it could change for the best, the, what we think is best is going to evolve and change as well. It's true. I loved a guitar. Six strings, you know, nice wood, uh, cool. Then I, then I got a tenor guitar, four strings. I go, wow, this is so cool. It only has four strings. And it makes a lot of noise just like the six string. And, and then I got a ukulele. And I'm going, oh, man, this is the best ukulele. You know, it's like this big. You can carry it anywhere you go. And you don't even have to sing good if you're playing a ukulele because <laughs> nobody expects good to come out of a ukulele. <laughs> so it works out well. So my evolution of musical instruments eventually led me to a harmonica, you know. Ten holes to begin with. Now I have a six-hole harmonica. And it just keeps evolving into something else. And sometimes it sounds better and sometimes it doesn't. You know, but it's always changing. My likes, my dislikes, my evolution as a person, always changing. And so can I stay on, on that path and change in the correct way? And the correct way is accepting all the change that happens, good and bad, and realizing that ultimately none of it matters. Because I'll be dead. And once that happens, I get to do it all over again. All the stuff I've done done in this life, I get to do again in a different way for the first time. How lucky am I? All that suffering I missed the first time, I get to enjoy the second time. (laughs) And it goes on and on and on. (laughs) Until ultimately I come to the place where I achieve nirvana and never have to be reborn again. Never have to suffer again in this lifetime. How lucky would I be if that was the case? I'd be very lucky. Because sometimes you just get tired of suffering. You get tired of hearing it could be better or it should be worse. You just get tired of all this stuff. You just want it to be the way it is and have total acceptance. So this karma and is a really important aspect. And the dharma for a Buddhist, the fourth niyama, is probably one of the most important aspects because it will allow us to know why we're suffering in a particular way, but more importantly, it will give us the antidote. It'll tell us what to do not to suffer again. So, 
We have the cosmos. We have genes and chromosomes. We have karma. We have dharma. And now, last but not least, we have mind. The mind niyama. Now, the mind niyama is a tough one because we think often that we are what we think. And somebody once said, I think, therefore, I am. And somebody said that one time, and I'm going, wow, yeah, okay. But then in Buddhism, we sort of push the I aside. You know, so it just becomes, I think, therefore, I think. And what do we think about? And, and the Buddha warned us that there are three poisons that affect the way we think about stuff. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, there's a, a channel called, um, I can't remember. It's one of these, like, 46.3. You know, now it's never easy. See, it never gets easier. It always gets more complicated. So I have antenna TV. I have 185 channels. Unbelievable. I, half of them aren't English. But that's okay. I'm learning a new language. <laughs> And this is a crime channel. All they have is crime the whole day. And I sometimes watch it just to make my life feel a little better. (laughs) But in one of the segments, it's greed. All about greed. And we have these business people, and they're stealing millions of dollars, and they have wonderful lifestyles, and they're messing around with everybody who donated. They're putting money into the thing. (coughs) So greed is really a tough one. Because greed affects everything we do. Can we... Only have one piece of chocolate cake. If you can't and need to have two, you might be dealing with greed. You know? And greed also has a very close relative called lust. And lust has been in the news a lot lately. (laughs) And we have all these men who just were unskillful 40 years ago. And now it's coming to light. And I'm going, man, it's so hard to be a guy now. I think this is going to affect marriage a lot. We're going to be so, so sensitive to all the stuff that's going on. We may not even ask people out anymore. It's just we go, I'm I'm not, so I can't talk to you anymore. Eye contact can be difficult too. What does it mean? He's looking at me. No. With good intentions. Yes. But how do you know their good intentions? I don't know. So, lust is a tough one. But lust is a driving mechanism in our world. You know, we got 7 billion people. We're not here because we're all kind to each other. We're here because lust drove us to replicate. We didn't even like the person, you know? <laughs> but we had three kids. <laughs> And now all the kids are grown up and the two adults look at each other and say, why the hell are we still together? We did our part. We left three behind. Let's have some fun now. Alone. Not together. You know, and it just, so I see all this kind of stuff. And then you're always watching these nature shows, you know. And there's only two things that really ever happens. And you see them. One is mating and one is eating. <laughs> and I was getting to the point where I can't watch the nature shows anymore because... Animals are cruel when it comes to lunchtime, you know? Man, they're just killing their, animal, you know, their prey, and they're ripping it apart, and they're eating it, and there's blood everywhere. And two days ago, on the news, they had six killer whales chasing a seal 
in the harbor, L.A. Harbor someplace. And the helicopter pilot says, look how beautiful it is, nature at work. And I'm going, you jerk, you know. (laughs) With all the destruction and death we see on the news every day, why do we have to watch seals being killed by killer whales, you know? But that's how life is. Life is tough. And when it's time to eat or time to mate, we have this greed and this lust, and it drives us to a place of satisfaction, which is always temporary. That's the bummer. I think it should have been made this way, humans. That at the age of 40, you no longer want to have sex. The genes and chromosomes kick in and take you off that path. And so from 40 on, you're just sort of hanging out with your buds, having friends, talking, going to movies, but none of this other stuff's going on. How easy would that be? How nice would that be? But no, we invented Viagra. And now... At 80, the little blue pill becomes our friend, you know, because we don't want to let lust go. It's not time yet. So we have greed and lust. We have hatred and anger, another mindset that really causes a lot of people to suffer. And you look at the political climate we have now, hatred and anger, great division. Sides are being taken. Nobody's in the middle anymore. God if they were ever in the middle, but now they're not. So how do you deal with this greed or this hatred and anger? Hatred and anger only burns the person who's angry. It really does nothing to the person you're angry at. They don't even know you're angry sometimes, you know? So we, we, we look at this and we're angry because it's not the way we want it to be. Something's wrong. I should get more or I should get less, depending on what it is. And I'm angry at all the people who don't recognize the fact that I exist and I'm a special person and I want to do it my way and nobody wants to do it my way. And I'm angry because nobody wants to do it my way. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, I guess I'm going to have to do it my way alone. You know? It takes great courage to do it your way alone because it may not be the general consensus of how it should be done. And you'll find out eventually if you're on the right track or not when you start doing it your way and realizing that everybody doesn't like you because you're doing it your way. So now you bend and do it their way, but it's not quite as satisfying anymore because it's their way and not your way. And then you think to yourself, maybe I'll just be an entrepreneur and then I'll get to do it my way all the time. But of course you won't because there are certain restrictions to anything you do if you want it to be successful and you want it to work. And then you go, wow, well, maybe I'll do my practice my way. And I'll go into a Zendo, and I'll just do it my way, and and nobody will think anything about that. Well, I did that, and it didn't work. I went to a Zendo, and I went in there, and I put my hands like this on my knees. And the head Zendo guy comes over and whispers in my ear halfway through the meditation, You can't sit like that. We all sit the same way. You have to have your hands like this, not like this. And so I moved my hands like this, and then he went away. And I thought to myself, he won't come back. He's made his point. So I moved my hands back. (laughs) 
And then he came over again. I was so surprised. And he said, if you keep doing that, you're going to have to leave. And I went, oh, man. Even in meditation, I can't do it my way. So I put my hands back and made everybody feel comfortable that I was one of the group. And, and not a subversive and not somebody who's going to change the system. You know, and I, you know, and, you know. And then we're having tea afterwards, and he comes over and he apologizes for being so stern with me. He says, we just have a way of sitting, and we all sit the same way, and then that's less distraction for all the other people who are sitting the same way. And I went, okay. And I, I didn't ever feel quite the same about Zen after that, because they don't let it do it your way. Now, at our center down the street, we get to do it our way as long as it's silent. And there are some people lie down and sleep, you know. Some people sit in a chair, and some people have their hands this way or this way or no way at all. And we don't say anything. You know, just whatever works for you. We all have different issues and different styles and different goals in meditation. And one of the things I found when you allow people to do it their way is there's no place for them to hide. See, if you're all sitting the same way, and you're all dressed in the same robe, and you're all looking straight down with your eyes closed, it's hard to tell who's not part of it. But when everybody's doing it their way, there's no place to hide. And you see some people very skillful, other people not so skillful. And, and that's sort of cool. It's like real. And it's like the way the world works. Because all of us have our own karma, our own way of looking at things, and we all do it our way anyway at some level. So, it's hatred, anger, not getting to do it your way, not getting what you want. Okay. Can I come to a place of acceptance with that? You know? When you're this high, you know, you're sort of grazing all the time. You're hungry and you're just, you know, no, 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 no. But then as you get older, your, your adult caretaker, usually mom or dad, says, well, you know, we're all going to eat together at a certain time. Even if you're hungry, you're going to have to wait for lunch. And lunch happens at 12 o'clock. So you're going to have to hold off. You're going to have to come to a place, in, place of acceptance for that hunger until 12 o'clock. Lunchtime. Okay, so you, you learn how to sort of do that. You know, and then everybody goes to eat at the same time. And if everybody's eating at the same time, it must be 12 o'clock. It must be lunchtime because everybody's eating. Okay, cool. Sometimes you might want to eat at 1.30. No, that's not lunch. That's 1.30. Lunch is at 12. Okay. Two years old, potty training. Okay. You have to conform. You just can't go to the bathroom anytime you want. Even though I know you'd like to, it really feels good. But we have... <coughs> We have to be accepted by our society as being disciplined enough to wait for the appropriate time to go to the bathroom and to have lunch. Okay, man, all these things are coming in here now. There's creating this person to sort of blend in and do what everybody else does. Yeah, okay, cool. So, to what end? Well, we don't want to rock the boat. We have a sort of a cultural literacy we're going through. We're learning now. We're learning to be part of the group and, and not to raise any questions that can't be answered. And we don't want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. And we want to do what people say. 
and off we go. And then you find Buddhism. And Buddhism says, man, it's all about you. You're going to do it your way whether you want to or not. And there's an accountability, and you're going to have to accept that accountability. And you're going to have to realize you're all interconnected and interdependent. You are not separate ever. There's always more than one of you out there creating all the stuff that goes on. Can you do that? And then can you start to look inside rather than outside for the real answers to those questions you have carried with yourself your whole life? You know? So you look to your church, you look to your government, you look to your parents, you look to your peer group. Limited. They only give you a certain amount of answers for all the questions you've got. And those answers are what they're programmed to give you. Okay. But now you want the real answer. Okay. The real answer may not have any words connected to it at all. It may be a situation. It may be a feeling. It may be an experience. Are you ready for it? Can you do it? Can you do it? There's a movie that came out long, long ago called Altered States. I found it. I had a copy. Started to watch it. LSD in a sensory, sensory deprivation tank. John Little used to do the same thing. For real. Because this is a movie. And, and can you imagine going into a sensory deprivation tank and dropping acid and waiting for stuff to happen? You know, it's just going to make you look at the world a bit differently. I remember Ram Dass and uh, Timothy Leary had some uh, divinity students, and they wanted to do a test. So half the group got a placebo, and half the group got LSD. And they wanted to see if LSD really would do what they thought it would. So it did, and they were fired. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way life works. So we don't need to do any kind of psychedelics at all. We don't need to do mushrooms or all the other stuff. We just need to sit and meditate. And we can come to those same places, and we can experience the same altered states of consciousness at a much slower rate, which allows us to integrate those experiences into our everyday life and, and start to see the true nature of who we are and what we could be. And what we could be, according to Buddhism, is we could be free. We could be free from suffering. And that fourth one dharma and that fifth one mind really work together. Because when you achieve enlightenment or nirvana, you you still have acid reflux and sore knees. (laughs) Doesn't change anything. But what happens is you have now transformed your mind. Your consciousness is totally different. And you did it your way. Because that's the only way you could do it because there's only one of you ever. In the seven billion people that exist today, you are unique and there's just one of you. And I think that is so cool to recognize that fact. That each one of us is special because there's only one of us. And we can't do what Joe does or Mary does because Joe is different from us and Mary is different from us. We've got to figure out what we need to do. And the five niyamas, for me, gives me a model to work with. When stuff starts to not work out so good, and I start to start blaming myself or others for the suffering or the, the physical sensations of pain or discomfort, I can look at those five niyamas and say, yeah, always more than one. I can't point at any one thing and say, that's the reason why it's happening to me. 
I have to take into account all the things that have come together in this unique moment that has produced this situation for me. Knowing very well that in the next moment it will be totally different because everything changes all the time. 